Hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush. I'm the author of the book on product-led growth. And I have here my co-host, Ramley. And today, we are going to have a really fun discussion. And Brennan here, I was watching on Twitter what he was talking about, about basically eliminating his CRM for his business. And I was like, oh my gosh, we have to talk about this because I think what a lot of people don't think about is when you don't necessarily have a sales team for a product-led business, well, what is the role of a CRM? And it's, it's very kind of an interesting question to ask that I don't think a lot of product-led companies are asking themselves enough. And so before we really dive into this big story, then can you just share a little bit more about how you came to even just start Soapbox? Sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll weave in the product-led journey into it because we, I think, started down this path maybe different than most. But yeah, my name is Brennan McEachran. I'm CEO, co-founder of Soapbox. We make really the, the first tool for managers to uh, manage the people part of their job, not necessarily the tasks. So if you are running one-on-ones and team meetings, we're kind of the tool for you. And uh, obviously, we do that in a product-led way, but we didn't start out that way. So my co-founder and I have been at it for 10 years, really working on how do we make feedback flow more efficiently at enterprises. And we started you know, back in the bootstrapping days, uh, selling large contracts to large businesses and kind of chase the cash a little bit, which was certainly valuable. And we were able to grow a business that way. But by separating ourselves from the end users and kind of filtering all of our product decisions through a executive buyer, we ended up, you know, building an app that they bought, but not necessarily an app that they used. And we had the opportunity a little bit to say, like, if we were to rebuild this thing from the ground up, what would it look like and how do we do it? And so we uh, kind of, in a way, I guess you could argue, although I don't like the word, but you could argue we kind of pivoted from the enterprise exec buyer to the end user of our application. And uh, most people, I think they, they wouldn't call that a pivot, but I think when you're fundamentally changing all of your marketing and you're fundamentally changing the onboarding of your app and making tweaks to the core parts of your app so significantly, in a way, it kind of felt like that. And that spooked you know, members of our team who were in sales at the time, and, uh, which is okay. And I guess if you're a, a larger company, it would be much harder to, to get away with. But yeah, anyway, so we kind of pivoted into product-led growth, although we didn't know it was called that at the time. We were just like, let's build a, a business the way we'd like to build a business now that we, we can. And uh, we've been at that for, you know, three or so years. And, you know, recently it's just really started to take off. I think, you know, it's like everything else, uh, you know, a little bit of investment up front and it pays off long term. So anyways, fast forward all the way to like last week, two weeks ago, one of our guys was like, hey, our CRM's coming up for renewal. What do you think? And I was like, what do you think? And he's like, I don't use it. So let's just get rid of it. So, hence the tweet. <laughs> Awesome. That's amazing. And I'm curious to hear like the whole situation behind making that switch from sales-led to product-led. Like we often hear like, yes, there's lots of companies that are trying to make that switch. But what sparked it for the team when you finally decided, you know what, we're, we're not going to pursue this way of growth any longer? Or maybe it was not that. It was just you slowly moved to more of a product-led business. Like what was that first situation? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We being bootstrapped, it's tough to be product led um, and also pay yourself for the first little bit. 
So especially when someone's like, hey, if you, you know, if you make this one tweak, I'll pay up front for for the year, right? And then you're like, well, you know, I can't pay myself, right? So I think that aside, you know, my co-founder and I are just product people, right? Like that's why we got into business. That's how we built the first version of our app is we just want to build cool products and we appreciate cool products and we like checking out apps and all that stuff. So for us, that's always been the natural way we've kind of moved. And then when we looked at, you know, we got to this 20 something person company and we had the opportunity to kind of rebuild our app from scratch. We said, well, first of all, are we building this company for businesses that exist today? Or are we building this company for businesses that exist in five years? And I think part of being a startup was building our app for, you know, the future and not necessarily for the past. So, you know, once we got that out of the way, it was, okay, well, how are we buying software? Because if we're going to start distributing and selling the software in a way that's different than how we buy, are we fundamentally bad purchasers of software? Or do we think we're a little bit ahead of the curve on how we buy software? And so when we looked at it, like every piece of software we used as a business started as some sort of like free thing or like content marketing that like merged into some sort of free thing that we accidentally started paying thousands of dollars a month for. And we kind of hate that, but we can't get rid of it because it's core to the ethos, right? Like, so we're like, let's do that. That sounds like a way better way of building a business. And ultimately the thing that tipped us over was in the existing sales model or revenue model, we had two main problems. The first is we were heavily pipeline constrained, meaning in order for us to grow revenue at the pace we wanted to grow revenue, the first problem was growing pipeline. And that's a tough situation to be in. And the second problem, the largest reason why people said they weren't maybe interested at the time And so the reason why people leaving our pipeline was basically the argument that if we were going to deploy this to all of our team, you know, how are we confident people will actually use it? And so we had this idea at the time, which was maybe a little bit more crazy than it is now, but we said, well, what if we just solve the adoption problem before we we solve the sales problem? And that's what kind of set us down the path. And yeah, I mean, it freaked out the salespeople that were there at the time. and, And we basically said, Hey, we have really one of two options. Like one is we we kind of bridge you through to the other end of the funnel where we we really need the salespeople again. Or two, you know, I'm going to call up all my friends and get you better paying jobs elsewhere, right? And uh, there was you know a lot of folks who wanted the better paying job elsewhere. So that's kind of how we handled that. And you know now we don't have any salespeople. That's really um, quite the the journey, obviously, to go from. That one end yeah. of the business where you're used to again of building that pipeline to seeing that pipeline dwindling. And it's really tough, I could imagine, being in that situation. So how did you manage that as a founder when you were making that transition? You saw your pipeline going smaller and smaller. I'm sure you must have thought to yourself at some point, like, is this worth it? Like, is this really going to work? Like, what gave you the audacity to really continue in that way? Yeah, either we're like really crazy or stupid. I've said <laughs> that for, for a couple of years, the board, like, you know, every 90 days, like either we're, we were like the stupidest people or the craziest people, or like, we're just, you know, absolute geniuses in waiting. Right. And, um, no, I mean, I had a lot of those fears for sure at the very start before we kind of went down this path. And I remember clear as day, like locking myself in the room, just going through the math of like, oh my 
God, like I'm going to need so many signups. Like where are these signups going to come from and how, how is this going to work? And what really helped the transition was deciding that it wasn't necessarily, there wasn't a start to it or that there wasn't even really a phasing of it. It was more just consecutive experimentation, you know, sets of experiments that would either work or not work. And to be honest, at the very, very start, I had this like, in almost in my heart, to be honest, I kind of wanted them to fail because it was going to be easier to not go through this journey, right? And so, no, it doesn't mean like we set it up to fail. We set it up as best we possibly could to succeed. I definitely went in with like, no, like I was up, like all, I pulled all nighters, you know, before the launch of like our first test. And I was like, no, 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 this has to work so well. And if it doesn't, and I've put in my full effort, then we can shut it down. We don't have to go down this path. And then of course, like, you know, it just takes off and you're like, ah, shit, like I've got it. Now I've really got to, you know, make hard decisions, but it's like a snowball. You just make small decisions, test them out and, and go with it until you're at the crossroads. And, you know, that crossroads for us was like, do we move our entire engineering team over to the new stuff? Do we, you know, move our homepage of our website over to the new stuff? And then, you know, how do you explain it to, you know, current customers who are used to buying the enterprise and all of a sudden they go to your site and you look, you know, a lot more like a consumer app, right? And uh, that was tough. Like the cultural part of it, I really underestimated how much of our culture had to change. I, I didn't really fully anticipate how the DNA of your organization, if you're a B2B sales-led company, uh, is different than the DNA of like a product-led company. I didn't appreciate how hard it would be for like non-founders to just make the switch on some of these things. Like I remember, you know, the number one source of our leads now is uh, our support team, right? And I was saying to her today, she just had her anniversary and I was saying, remember back when we started making the switch? And I was like, you got to use emoji and GIFs and in the support message. And she's like, that's not Soapbox. I was like, Soapbox is whatever we make it. And I think you and me use emojis and GIFs. And so let's use them with our customers. And like, it was hard. I had to like really, really change the way the people inside thought of um, ourselves in order for people to get comfortable with that. And now internally, everyone thinks I love emoji. I'm like, I am okay at emoji. I don't really care about it, but it was more that it represented this shift from, you know, enterprise to, to product-led enterprise. So you know, ultimately that came down to like really, really intense one-on-one -on -one discussions with basically everyone at the company, hours on end. And I remember some of them clear as day of like people like looking me in the eye being like, this is either crazy or stupid. Like this isn't a good idea. It's either a crazy idea or a stupid idea. And I was like, yeah, that's part of what being a startup is, right? Is let's not do the safe thing and let's kind of swing for the fences here. So anyways, we're on the other end of it. Thank God my heart can't take even the memory of some of those. <laughs> but out of all that, like there's so many great stories there. What was the biggest challenge out of that whole transition? Deciding to focus on our, not deciding, deciding and committing and relentlessly focusing on the free experience of our application with full force, full focus of our entire company for like a year. And that's tough as like a startup with revenue, with a board, with VC backing you to, to say like, let's just take a full stop pause on, you know, the one growth metric that the finance people care about. And let's like just relentlessly iterate on 
our free users onboarding experience until we get it to the right metric. And uh, maybe we never hit that metric, right? But, you know, for us, like we hit it. And then, you know, once we hit it, that unlocked like the next stage for us of, all right, let's put, it's funny, man. Like then I was like, let's put a designer on it. Right. And um, the goal was to hit the utility metrics before it looked pretty, because uh, if people were still using it and it was ugly, then boy, they would probably use it a lot more if it was pretty. And, and we doubled retention just by like putting uh, a coat of paint on it. And then we're like, all right, we're in business here, right? Like now we have something that's like real, has raw utility and is sticky. There's a, a foundation we can build on. But, you know, for 12 months, there was like nothing. Like for 12 months, there was like just crazy talk of like, you know, and there's no users, right? Like when your retention's not there, there's no users to talk to. There's no customers to talk to. Like, dude, I would just LinkedIn in mail people and be like, you look like someone who I would like to have as a customer <laughs> in like 24 months. Would you be down just to hang out and chat? And like some people said yes to that, which was great. Some people ended up are now like friends from that era. And uh, I think they, they kind of became fans and, and promoters and things like that. But yeah, that was tough. That was tough for sure. And the, the hard part was taking the team along that ride. Like if you're a one, two person, you know, co-founder group, you have other problems for sure, but that, that's not the problem. When you have 20 people, that was, that was tough. Can you talk a little bit about the experiment? You said you set up an initial experiment in the beginning to like kind of test this out first before you kind of made that whole transition. Yeah. What, what did that experiment look like? And you know, what were the results? Yeah, great question. Oh man, we're going into like, this is the good stuff. I've been wanting to talk about some of this stuff for a while. And like where, what's, what's the podcast I can talk on? I've clearly found my tribe here. Yeah, man. So the first thing was, so now we do experiments like, you know, multiple experiments a week. But uh, back then it was like just big bet after big bet. And uh, if they were wrong, we would tweak it. And uh, this first one for us was we wanted to test the concept of, well, the, the very first failed experiment was what does Soapbox look like for one person? And you have to remember like the team up until that point had thought Soapbox was really valuable for companies that were minimum 1,000 people. And our customer list at the time was Coca-Cola, Pepsi Global, Walmart. We did a 90,000 deployment at Walmart. So I went to the team and I said, what does Soapbox look like for one person? How do we add value for that one person? So that was test number one. Can we figure that out? And the answer was we couldn't even figure it out. So then we went to how do we add value for two people, right? Maybe we're not a single player game or multiplayer. So what does two person value look like? And we kind of um, narrowed in on, well, the smallest group of people, two people sharing feedback in a way that currently exists would be a one-on-one -on -one meeting. So we thought, all right, like what can we do to add value to that one-on-one -on -one meeting? And uh, to start, we said, let's not overcomplicate the matter. Let's look at ourselves and how would we make our one-on-ones better? And how would we make, uh, for, for other companies that are like ourselves, and at the start, that's like a big, a big enough market. How do we make it better for them? And um, at the time, we came up with a Slack bot to help create the agenda and run you through different, you know, suggested questions and things like that based on, uh, you know, research. And like the Giphy, like just shuffle some, some GIFs or GIFs and add it to your agenda. So we said, all right, let's try that. And that came out of talking to customers. Before the Slack bot, it was like, hey, here's a little web app. And they were like, to be honest, I'm never going to use a web app for this. And we're like, well, what about a Slack bot? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And um, 
So we went off and built the Slack bot. And then we went, <laughs> and we went back to some of those users. Hey, we built a Slack bot. And they're like, oh, that's great. But Trello has a Slack bot. So I thought your idea was really great. I just did a makeshift version of it in Trello. So I don't care about you anymore. Um, but anyways, we launched it on Product Hunt. We were like top of the day. And so that for us was, was like, all right, cool. Now, granted, right? Like I was up at 3 a.m. till, you know, 3 a.m. The, the next day, 24 hours straight of just like hustling for votes and comments and stuff like that. So I wasn't going to go down without a fight on that. But if I put in that effort and we still didn't make it to the top, then, okay, maybe there's not a market, right? Or maybe there's not product market fit. And the goal for that actually had nothing to do with retention. The goal for that was, can we get the votes, right? Can we get enough people to say like, this is interesting. Number two was, can our marketing page, the text and the imagery on our marketing page convert the right percentage? And so basically, I don't know if you've read the book, Lean Analytics, but basically we just ripped through that um, as fast as we can. So it was like step one was very, very top of the funnel. Let's experiment until that's in a good spot and then work our way through and not leave a stage until we we feel like we've kind of mastered it. And we got to about the retention stage of it. And then I think that model stopped being as helpful for us, but that's basically how we phased out our experiments. Awesome. So you talked so far mostly about like the challenges and why it's really tough to make that whole switch, which I totally agree. It is not the easiest thing to do for sure. But why? Like, what are the results you've seen? Like, was it worth all of that pain to get to there? (laughs) What are the outcomes on your end? Yeah. So was it worth the pain? Uh, Yes. But it depends what you're trying to do, right? Like, I think product-led is definitely more of a venture scale model, right? Like, in order to be product-led, you have to invest in product upfront. And there are certainly ways of doing that, you know, for the cheap, but ultimately you're hiring sales last, right? So in doing so, you're kind of foregoing cash up front for product dev now. But what you get on the other end is you'll have the best product in the industry, right? I'm a big believer that long-term product wins as long as you kind of attach a good distribution strategy on it. And that's really the the whole concept of product-led is is not only have product lead your organization, and have the best product, but also grow through product. And so you kind of solve the two big problems, I think, faced for startups. So yeah, I mean, so let me give you like some before and after stats, right? So our MPS is like, you know, 50 points higher. It's kind of like even uh, hard to imagine, but our MPS is way higher. We're just in general, more proud. Our employee MPS is way higher, right? Like the team is really excited by it. Um, We used to generate about 30 qualified opportunities per month that we could, you know, hopefully convert into sales. We now do about 300 per week. So that's like a hundred X difference, but the real power in product led versus sales led. And I know that's not really the point of the discussion, but like the real power in it is if you want to create an inflection point in your business and improve something by 1%, If you do that, if you figure out what it takes, you do that and you ship that code or you ship that experience that does it, you just now have that. That's just a superpower you have in your business for the rest of your business. If you were to train up a sales rep and get them to go, you know, to go from 0% productivity to 100% productivity, when they leave, that's gone, right? And the next rep that you hire, you have to ramp up and they're going to ramp up to like 75% of that other guy until you know they get four years in them 
And so if you really want to grow revenue, you got to really hire out that sales force. And that sales force is going to start not knowing anything about the product. They're not going to know anything about the market. They're not going to know anything about your process. So you train them up and like, yeah, give everyone 90 days for it. And they're going to get X productivity. And it's a numbers game and whatever. And then event, you really, like, it's like Theseus' ship a little bit. Like, you really have to get good at the hiring the training of people because that talent does leave. And that's okay that the talent leaves, but it does leave. And with it is all the tacit knowledge of, you know, how to phrase certain things or why you built this feature or how this feature works and how to position it so that you can close the deal. Whereas if you put all that in the product and you make a 2% improvement, it's just 2% improvement from then on out. And if the next week you add another 2%, it's compounding. And I think people really underestimate the power of compounding like interest on your revenue funnel, right? It's not linear. Adding sales reps gives you linear. And if you, if you add sales reps in an exponential way, sure, right? But product-led growth, you can actually get that exponential. So you, you can see it, right? Like we're growing this month at a, you know, an exponential rate. I'm a little bit disappointed because I feel like some of the experiments could have you know, done better, right? You get in this crazy mental state where you get addicted to the growth on the growth, not necessarily the growth. I hope that answered your question. No, I, I like the distinction between adding sales reps gives you that more lateral growth. Whereas, yeah, if you can build that product-led approach, then there's that compound interest that really starts building again and again. And so for the people who are listening who are like, you know, I want to make that switch. Like, what is the, the one piece of advice you'd really give them to, whether it's like make the jump or uh, just go through that journey with more confidence? So I've talked to a lot of CEOs about this. They've kind of reached out privately. And one thing I'll say is if, if your business is like, you know, 20 people or more, they're reaching out from the shadows, right? There's a lot of CEOs who I've talked to privately or I've met at conferences and they've told me, they're like, I am at this conference, but in my calendar, it says I'm at a different conference because I don't want my team to know I care about product-led growth because they're scared, right? There are people literally scared for their jobs because of it, right? And uh, so I think like the first thing is like, this is just the wave of the future. Like this is like SaaS 2.0. So, you know, if you are still selling and you're not, but if you're still, like, still selling software with CDs or DVDs, you know, the ship has, you know, long since sailed. This is kind of the same thing. It's just a matter of time where we give enterprise buyers the, the consumer experience that they're used to at home. So, you know, it's an inevitable situation. I think the question you want to ask yourself is for right now, for your business, for where your business is at, does it make more sense to optimize for how businesses are buying, you know, over the course of the past five years or for how businesses will buy over the course of the next five years. And if you're looking at your revenue and the growth that you need and you say, shit, man, we really got to optimize for the next five years, then I think you kind of don't have a choice. You have to seriously explore it. And the way I would do it to start is I would start more on the like SMB side of it um, and almost approach it as like, hey, this isn't always for enterprise. This is for the, the smaller self-serve segment of the market, but use that as a honeypot to catch enterprise buyers. And you can do really small things. They don't have to be, it doesn't have to be in the same code base, right? Like you can kind of start it off as a, a side project. And I would study how HubSpot did it. Like HubSpot, I think, took a thousand person organization and, and went from being uh, marketing led to being product led in a big way. 
but they started with a Chrome extension, right? For salespeople and they merged that, they, they eventually took that all the way to a free CRM. And that's now the majority of their leads. So I think you want to start with the end user at that organization that you're currently selling into, but call them SMB buyers to your team, build it self-serve to start and then experiment, right? But for sure, it's going to be tough and you're going to go down this path of eventually going to have to make the call or are you product led, right? Or do you have like a small team that does growth things? And if you're product led, then your whole team should be product led. But if you have a little growth team on the side that's doing some product-led experiments, you know, fine. But at some point, you're going to have to call a spade a spade. And, you know, for us, like, it basically goes, like, the org chart basically goes my co-founder and I, and then it goes product, right? It's pretty clear that, you know, beyond just how we think about our business strategically, but how we organize our business, we're product-led. So I think at some point, you have to make that call, but you could start it as basically your growth team. That's really interesting. So... Go into that more for the org chart. The org chart? <laughs> because I get this question a lot. So it's like you at the top, your product team, and then is there like other teams below that or is everyone just product? <laughs> we do uh, an, like an interesting style of org chart. We're basically, instead of being functionally divided, which I think is bad. I mean, everything's bad for a variety of reasons and everything's good for a variety of reasons. But I think at a startup, um, at a certain size, I don't think you necessarily want to just lump engineers with engineers and marketers with marketers and have them not talk to each other, especially if you're product-led because marketing and product and engineering is just a very blurry line. And so if if you start creating silos, you're going to have a hard time growing. So the way we've organized the business is is more based on goals that we have. And because we're product-led, ultimately those goals fall on product. So we have what we call squads. I don't know if you've heard of these squads, tribes, and chapters by Spotify. So we've basically kind of taken that and tweaked it a little bit. We have chapters, which is like the secondary access of our org chart, which is basically functions. So if you currently have like a VP of engineering and like a VP of marketing and a VP of whatever, and they all report you know, to the CEO, they kind of wouldn't anymore. So we have those people, they're called chapter leads, and they're like the experts in their field. We review their kind of functional operation every month. But other than that, they're pretty autonomous to do whatever they want. And their team is spread out across what we call squads. And squads are cross-functional groups with a shared goal. And they're also autonomous. And the squad leader is is like a product manager, basically. And uh, the way it works for us is like we have a land squad and we have an expand squad. So the land Squad is in charge of landing new customers and the expand squad is in charge of expanding those customers. And so naturally on the land squad is uh, some folks from marketing and some, some front and some back ends, mobile, anyone who does app store stuff, they're all in a group together. They all have one shared goal, right? Get X number of customers per week. And within that, they can do whatever they want. So they look at the metrics, they look at the product, they look at their backlog, they look at customer development interviews. They come up with what they want to do on a sprint by sprint basis. And they pitch it to my co-founder and I, and we basically coach them through like, is that really the most important thing? You know, is that really what you want to focus on? Did you really do enough research into it? Is the data really you know, showing what you think the data is showing you? But other than that, they're pretty much autonomous. Go and get customers however you want to go get customers with the skill sets that you have. And then the expand side, same thing, right? Like, um, you know, we charge on a per user basis. So if those users aren't using it, we're not going to be able to make money off of them. And if they're not sharing it, same thing. So however they can kind of come up with doing that, awesome, go for it. 
And so because of us being product-led, the PM kind of carries a lot of that weight, but it doesn't mean the engineers and, and the marketers or uh, the expand side or success team sits. So, you know, the CSMs of the support reps don't have any say. They, they have probably more say. And the PM kind of helps prioritize that. And then they basically get grilled a little bit on, you know, is that prioritization the, the absolute best that can be for the current state of the business? And then they're off, man. They get to go and run and do what they think is going to be impactful. And that leads to them taking bets and being autonomous. And, uh, you know, like last week, we just changed our pricing because uh, the expand team was like, listen, like, you know, we think we're losing people because of this, the jump from 10 to 11 users with the current pricing model, we're going to change it. So like they rolled out a, a pricing model change in four days. Like, great, cool. Let's see if that works. Right. And we'll let it sit for, you know, three weeks or something. But, you know, that's something that's like really, really hard to do if you're trying to coordinate engineering, trying to coordinate marketing, trying to coordinate product, trying to coordinate design. You really have to be a quarterback to keep everyone in the loop. But if they, if you have one person from each team in a room together, they can just get it done pretty quick. So that's basically how we organize it. It's really fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about support because it's something that you talked about earlier. And before yeah. even we recorded that, the traditional BDR is dead and support is now really like at the front of it. Yeah. How has support like contributed to growth? And I also noticed you did an experiment and you talked about it at the product led summit, how you tripled the portfolio. Yeah. So my big thing, like I constantly go to the team. I'm probably like the craziest person to talk to on this topic, but I'm probably the only one in the world that goes to the support team and says, increase volume. Like, please increase support volume. And I'm not going to the product team to say that, but I'm going to like the you know, support. And we have kind of a RevOps guy who has, you know, is in charge of the intercom pops ups and things like that. And I'm like, no, no, I want a 3x, 5x the volume we get to support so that we can spend more money on support reps, right? And it basically boils down to a couple core learnings that I experienced personally when we were starting to build out the expansion side of the business. So, one is, when you are product-led and you are self-serve and people can do everything they want to do within your app, they don't want to talk to you, right? And it's really hard to get them to talk to you. So I was emailing them. I was doing whatever it would take. Like even just to get their feedback on our app, I was like, hey, just please, man, like you're using it every single day. Like, please just tell me what you like or don't like and I'll fix it. And it would just be ignored. And I'd follow up like nine times and nothing. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get anything out of them. And then, you know, you see that guy right into support. Hey, how come this thing doesn't work in the mobile app? And I would just, the name would pop up and I'd be like, that fucker, like that guy, sorry, I don't know if I can swear, but like I have been emailing that guy nonstop and he's been ignoring me on purpose, clearly. And then he writes into support and, and it's like, I, I was just, I ran over to the support person. I was like, listen, do not let this person leave without getting their feedback. and tell them like Brennan says, like he really, he's a real, like Brennan's a real person. He really wants to talk to you. And I got a call with him and he's like, dude, I love your app so much. Like I just unsubscribed from intercom emails and I unsubscribed from other, I didn't even know you're like reaching out to me, whatever. I just don't check my inbox that often. And I, I love your app. I think it's great. Here's some things I would change. And I was like, man, like the amount of effort I had trying to talk to this guy versus how easy it was to get him once he was talking to us was the, like the, the balance was just so in the favor of, you know, strike when the iron's hot. 
So, uh, you know, immediately I went to the team. I was like, okay, step one, every single person who writes in can have a call with me, like personally. And Intercom at the time rolled out like the ability to book meetings through Calendly or something like that. So I was like, integrate that together. Everyone on support can have a 50-minute call with me. And in fact, everyone should. So at the end of every support call, offer it. Let's see what happens. And then if they're like a, a hot opportunity, we think it's a hot opportunity, they can get more time or whatever. And then I went to the, the RevOps guy and I was like, I want you to 5X the, the volume. Like I want you to get me to the point where I'm like crying every day with the amount of phone calls. And then we're going to hire this rollout. I think there's a role here. So man, that at the end of that month, I hadn't like shaved all month. I was like, I was doing calls at like 7 a.m. And then I was doing calls at like 9 p.m. at night in Australia for people. Like it was, not, it was a madhouse. And uh, the truth is like for every one person that writes in, and this is a, a book actually, Ben at privy.com recommended. He said, uh, it's a book called Hug Your Haters. And the basic idea of like, if one person writes in, to complain about your app, there are 100 people. Like the stats show for every one person that writes in, there's 100 people who have that problem. So you should be able to pretty easily 100x your support questions, right? And obviously you should make your product better so that those disappear. But um, for every one person that writes in, you should be able to, to talk to 100 more people. So step one, I gave you know the goal to the team, like figure out how to do that. And part of it was finding out where some of the bugs were, the confusing experiences were, and offer support and create those chat conversations. Part two is just making them feel you know, comfortable that I was willing to increase support volume. But this, the, the really interesting thing is, if people are passionately angry about your application, they're passionate about your application. There's a, on a foundation of passion. And it's much easier to take someone who is passionate about your application negatively and turn them into someone who's passionate about your application positively than it is to create passion in someone in their core, right? So that was kind of the, the big thing. And uh, like, honestly, that's a huge source of growth for us is, is support conversations and by far, right? Um, and still to this day, like we have Calendly links that go out to basically anyone. I'm not on the other end. I'm not the receiving end of it anymore, thank God. But um, I still try to jump in on as many of them as I possibly can because you just get like raw truth from the ground floor about how your application is doing and um, what you can do to make it better. And I try to literally like have five of these calls and then go into a product meeting and I'm like, listen, all of these stats are great, but like, here's what I'm being yelled at about right now. So let's just fix that. And then, you know, those go away. And then the support team is like, Hey, those bugs got fixed. You know, our support volumes going down and like, we have to find new ways to generate that. So in a way to me, that part of the business is what the BDR team used to be for me, right? Like, like generating, sales conversations now happens through support and it used to happen cold. Now it happens hot, right? These are people who are passionate. And I've talked to, you know, the, the one thing I'll say to people is like, you think these support conversations are going to be just like junk Gmail people. And the reality is like, I've talked to the head of HR for Airbus. They have hundreds of thousands of employees and the head of HR for that entire company is just chatting with me on intercom. So we jumped on a call and you know, she's like, I'll do a case study for you, right? Like, it's like a huge inbound. And I've talked to, you know, CEOs, their chief of staff for 30 minutes so that they would upgrade to $10. And I told them on the phone, I was like, you have thousands of employees and you're spending 30 minutes on a $10 application. Like, I got to charge you more money for this phone call, right? Like, 
this is clearly really important to you and it's $10 at the end of the day, right? So it's not just, it's not just frontline or whatever, like everyone who is an executive basically at this point is going home, opening up Instagram and looking at photos of their family. So if you're providing an experience that's not to the same quality of Instagram, then you're for sure losing some of these people, right? And if they can figure out Instagram on their own, they should be able to figure out at least the onboarding part of your app. And there's no reason to hide it if it's good. So you might as well at least put a free trial up there. But that, again, requires focus. And that free trial, man, like people, they'll get in there and they'll like that. There's no hotter opportunity than, than someone who is like trying to figure out how to use your application at work, but can't and wants to talk to you about it. That to me is the future of sales. Sales is just helping people buy not tricking people into spending money. And so if you can help them buy, you know, a big part of that is helping them, which I think the main channel for that is going to be support. Amazing. And I feel like this is one of those conversations we could literally just keep talking <laughs> going on and on. Yeah. This is amazing. But the last question I want to ask you is really just along the lines of how did you really change the mindset in your team from going from selling first to thinking about how do we solve for adoption first, then selling? Because I see a lot of companies that get stuck up on that whole mind shift because it, it, you can't just approach it the same way. So how did you approach it? I was in the same boat for sure for a long time, right? Like I didn't want to be focusing on adoption for a year, right? It just, it kind of came down to like, if this is going to work, right? Like you can't churn your users. So I think step one is like at the top in your head, whoever's driving this, like you have to be ruthlessly committed to that. You have to stand up for it 365 days a year and probably longer depending on how good you are at building products. And, and I think the number one thing I learned is like people who think they're good at building products are probably not better than the average person, right? Like they're probably pretty average and product led Growth people live and die by how good they are at building products, not how good they are at selling those products or marketing those products. So you have to be good and you learn to be good kind of the hard way. So, but anyways, I think step one is like, you got to be ruthlessly committed to that goal. And then for me, it was just stage gating it. It was, Hey, really, there's no point in us spending any second of engineering effort on building a feature that won't be used within the first minute until we get enough people to the first minute, right? So like, let's just work on the landing page until we get enough conversions on the landing page to feel good about how we're even positioning the product. And the truth is like a lot of times I've talked to founders that are like, aren't you burning leads by doing that? And sure, yeah, control the amount of people who are signing up so that you're getting like 100 you know, a month or, or some sort of like number that feels significant. But the truth is like when you go product led, you're going to have a huge top of funnel and it's going to be bigger than anything else you've dealt with. So to burn, you know, a couple people at the start isn't going to look like much because they can also come back. But then it was don't spend any time working on anything in the app unless it helps day one, right? The truth is you're going to lose most people in five minutes. So why would you ever build a dashboard? Why would you? And like, there is just no point in building a dashboard for the 1% of people who are going to see it. If, you know, 99% of people literally like close the tab after clicking, like I want to sign up. So 
you know, work through that until you're comfortable with that number. And then same thing, like, okay, great. You made it through five minutes. They've now successfully set up, you know, the core part. Um, they're probably going to close the tab. How do you get them back on day two? Because if they're not coming back on day two, and the reality is most of them aren't going to, then why are we talking about dashboards or payment modals or credit card processes or, you know, paywalling and stuff like that, tripwires? Like, why are we spending any time on tripwires if we can't even get people to open up our app again on day two and it's free, right? So that was kind of the ruthless criteria until we got, like, for me, it was 14 days. And it was 14 days because I thought if we ended up coming out with a trial, that would be a decent trial length for our pro experience. So, you know, let's start there. And, and then basically once we hit that, we said, all right, let's, let's start building out pro features. And, uh, you know, that took a while. And then we built up paywalling. And then, you know, we launched that and we had no conversions. And I think like the learning we had there was, you know, people are coming to your app for one thing and they won't necessarily upgrade for something else. So you have to have them upgrade to the core part of your product. And that, that core part has to be awesome. So anyways, I think, you know, the, the saying goes for product led is like higher sales last. So eventually work your way through it. We work through lean analytics, um, but we switched at some point to like pirate metrics. And, you know, if you have, you know, acquisition activation, we put revenue at the end. So acquisition, activation, retention, referral, revenue. And once we felt good about our MPS, cool, let's get focused on some of the other stuff. But I think if you focus too early on sales, like that, that's part of your sales-led culture creeping back in. doesn't mean you shouldn't make money from it. It's just uh, you have to have something worth making money on before you can expect people to self-serve upgrade. But the bigger issue than just like the project planning part of it is the culture, right? And so what we did to seed the culture to start was we codenamed it. And the code name allowed it to have its own culture, right? Like, oh, Soapbox is this, but code name thing, that's different, right? That's colorful and, and like obnoxious or whatever it is, right? It can be different because it's, it's like technically under a different umbrella. And then once we got it to a spot where we're like, shit, we're proud of this thing, right? We're like, guess what? Like internally, right? Like here's the big shift internally, like the brands, right? Like just swapped them. And the team was like, oh, like, okay, cool. Like now we can be cool online and we don't have to be stuffy and, and have photos with suits and things. So that's kind of how we did it internally. Awesome. Yeah, I, I totally agree with your whole perspective of like that first five minutes. So valuable. I always call that dashboard like the most valuable real estate in your entire product because most people don't realize it. Like they just dump people into this empty dashboard for your SaaS application. It's like, what are you, you're expecting your user to understand what to do now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everything is like that space. If you had just guided someone to get closer to seeing value in your products, you would have been so much further along. And the crazy thing is like, the truth is like your app is probably pretty bad. That's why like people who have declared interest in it are leaving, right? They're not stupid users. Like in a lot of times, if you talk to them, they're like pretty smart, normal people who are just wildly confused at the experience you gave them. Dude, we're, you know, I said like, you know, kind of three years into that like first five minute experience and I'm still iterating on it. We're still iterating on it. Like stuff is going out today that, you know, is changing that experience. And still to a large degree, our biggest lever for revenue growth right now is activation of those initial signups. Like if we can improve that, which I think we can, if we can improve that, we can directly at this point improve our revenue growth. So 
you know, that's the thickest part of the fire hose for us is just like the top part of the funnel. And so, yeah, if we can improve that, it should trickle all the way out to the other bit. And so even now to this day, we're tweaking it and changing it, coming up with new things and trying to showcase the right things, keep it simple and keep it straightforward. I think we're getting close. Like, I think we're getting close to it being like good and normal and what people expect, but there's still some rough edges for sure. Awesome. So where can people find out more about you and your crazy antics on Twitter, announcing you're like totally eliminating your CRM, surprising everyone in SaaS? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, we did that. And what I'll say is like, all of our customer stuff is just in, in other tools now, right? It's like in Intercom or it's in, um, we use a tool called Vitaly for customer success and it's in uh, our product, right? But yeah, I'm on, on Twitter. I am Brennan and I, um, my Twitter experiment, that's by the way, like it, it, it's an experiment for like top of funnel. Like how do I drive people to the website? So everything is an experiment now. But yeah, I try to do one tweet a day. So we'll see, <laughs> on my way home from work of what happened that, that day. So um, that one kind of sparked a fire and LinkedIn, same thing. So feel free to connect or follow it. and engage. The big thing there for me is it's not really marketing, it's community. So hang out, chat, and let's figure out what this product led thing is together. I'm happy to share all of my secrets with the community here. Awesome. And honestly, thank you so much for sharing all those insights because a lot of the people who are listening are going to be on the fence of thinking about like they're a sales-led organization, they want to become product-led. So a lot of the stuff you just shared is going to be super helpful for them. So thank you again for coming on the show. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Really appreciate it.